Our topic today is the message of Simeon to Mary and Joseph, and then, of course, to Mary in particular. But it begins with a, a message to both, and then there'll be a prophecy regarding Israel and a prophecy directly to Mary. Mary. We'll look at all that today. And I'm going to read chapter 2 of Luke. But our text will begin at verse 25. So the child grew and became, uh, excuse me, and it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the words will be registered. This census took place while Quirinius was governing Syria, so all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in a swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing which has been made known that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which is told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen. <coughs> and it was told them. And when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now in the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And then we come to our text the message of Simeon. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him that the Holy Spirit would not, uh, that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought him the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and he blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, alike to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, and the thoughts of many hearts may be that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. We'll stop there. We'll consider Anna, Lord willing, next week.
<clears throat> now, before we hear this inspired message of Simeon, he's a prophet. There's some th- Luke tells us some important things about him. First, we are informed that the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now, before the death and resurrection of Christ, before the New Covenant era and Pentecost, Old Testament believers possessed the Holy Spirit. They were regenerated and drawn to the Messiah to come by a work of the Spirit. Without a work of the Spirit within them, no one could have saving faith or truly believe the truth in both dispensations. Okay, because there's some dispensationalists who taught, well, they didn't have the Spirit. Well, if you don't have the Spirit, you can't believe. The difference that the ascension of Christ and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit made was that New Covenant believers receive a greater effusion of the Spirit, and the Spirit's work is now international. The reason that we are told that the Holy Spirit was upon Simeon in this passage is not simply to let us know that he was a genuine believer. That's quite obvious. For we've already been informed that he was righteous and devout. The Spirit was upon him in a special sense because he was a prophet of God. Luke wanted his readers to understand that Simeon was giving inspired, infallible, and therefore thoroughly reliable testimony regarding Jesus. Over and over and over again in the account, whether Matthew and especially Luke, the testimony that this is the Christ, the Son of God, the Savior, is quite clear and it's very explicit. Second, the Holy Spirit revealed to Simeon that he would not die, that is, he would not see death, until he met the Lord's Christ in person. Now, he had been hoping that the Anointed One would come, and he'd been praying for the Anointed One to come, the Messiah. At some time, he received some kind of special revelation that his hopes and prayers would be answered. They would be fulfilled. God favored Simeon so highly that he answered him by a divine revelation that he would meet the Messiah. There had been, now think about this, there had been no prophecies or divine revelations from God since the time of Malachi, who lived 400 years before Jesus was born. Remember, this is before John the Baptist starts his official ministry. John the Baptist is called the last Old Testament prophet by Jesus. He's the forerunner. He's the last Old Testament prophet. Prophecy had ceased for 400 years, and now it was starting up again. With him and, of course, with Anna. The return of the prophetic gift was a sign of the Messiah's advent. Note. Those and those only can with courage see death and look it in the face without terror that have had by faith the sight of Christ. And you see these unbelievers, oh, I welcome death. It's wonderful. It's all good for us to die. We all have to die sometime. Make room for the next seeds, you know. No. If you don't have Christ, death is a horrible thing. If you have Christ, if you possess Christ, you're ready to see death. You're ready to taste death. And then third, he was guided by the Holy Spirit to go into the temple. Literally, the Greek says, in the Spirit, he came into the temple. 
And this phrase is identical to that used of John in the book of Revelation, 1.10.4.2.17.3.21.10. This is a technical way of speaking of prophetic inspiration. Compare Matthew 22.43, Numbers 11.25, 2 Samuel 23.2, Ezekiel 2.2, 3.24, 2 Peter 1.21. The way the revelation is received can be in a vision, for example, Acts 22, 17 and 18, Revelation 4, 2, 17, 3, 21, 11. Or it can be a voice from God, a still small voice. Or a superintendence of the Holy Spirit when writing. Paul and Peter and John when writing epistles, or those who wrote the Gospels. They were superintended by the Holy Spirit in such a manner that what they wrote is the very word of God. Even though it still has their style, it is infallible, it is inerrant, it is the very word of God and has to be treated as such. It is likely that Simeon received a direct communication where to go and how to identify Mary, Joseph, and the newborn in the crowd. You have to understand, <clears throat> uh, Mary would be coming into the court of women and it was a very crowded place. There's a lot of people there. And he had to know where to be at the, at the right time. Simeon's presence at the temple was divinely ordered so God's promise could be fulfilled. After Jesus was circumcised and officially named, he needed to be presented before the Lord. And then the Holy Family would return to Nazareth. The opportunity for Simeon to meet Jesus was a small one. And God made sure that he would be in the right place at the right time. And this event, of course, reminds us of Malachi 3.1. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. <clears throat> the same spirit who had given Simeon hope and revealed to him the promise now provided him with great joy by guiding him to the fulfillment. The temple here refers to the court of the women, it's the court of the temple where the saints would gather, not the temple sanctuary, obviously, where only the priests could go. It was restricted. Luke knew the difference between Haran, the temple court, or the temple in general, 237 and 46 and 49, etc., and Naos, the temple sanctuary or holy place, 1921-22 and 23-45. The parents of Jesus go into the court of the women to present the child to Yahweh. Women could not go beyond this court. There's the court of the women, then the court of the men. Then beyond that, only the priest can go there. And then beyond that, the Holy of Holies, only the high priest can go there, and that's only once a year. And if you know anything about the Talmud and what they say about the high priest, they tied a rope around his leg just in case he was struck dead by God. They could drag him out of the Holy of Holies. <clears throat> Now, Mary and Joseph, of course, are described as the child's parents because Joseph was legally the father, even though he had nothing to do with the conception of the child. <clears throat> we are informed that what they were doing was according to what the law required. The verb here is heiress, which is punctiliar. It's used to describe the parents bringing in the child. Therefore, we can infer that Simeon was uh, reading, ready and waiting for the very moment the child was brought into the court. As soon as Simeon sees the child, he takes him in his arms and he blesses God. 
Simeon's faith was so strong that he looked upon this little baby as the Savior of the world, as God and Lord over all. He held the child with love and great affection. And then we come to verses 28 to 32. He took him up in his arms and he blessed God and he said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. <clears throat> While holding the baby Jesus, Simeon blesses God. The word blessed, eulogeo, where we get the word eulogy, which in reference to God means to speak well of or to praise. He is celebrating, he is exalting God's work of salvation in Christ. And that's what we do every Lord's Day in public worship. And of course, what we do every day in our private worship. This blessing was spoken aloud on the hearing of all the people present near Joseph and Mary. This was a public place. This was not a private meeting somewhere outside of the village. This was in a very public place. The doctrine of Christ and his work revealed in this praise is rich and profound. Now, there were solid, this tells us, there were solid believers in Israel during this time. And had the scribes and Pharisees listened to men such as Simeon or John the Baptist later, instead of their unbelieving apostate rabbis, the nation would have been much better off. So here's a, here's a man who proves there were true believers, even in these dark times in Israel. Now, Simeon's blessing begins with a very personal note. He thanks God for fulfilling his promise to allow him to behold the Messiah before he dies. Well, what, what a blessing that would be. The word now is, the, is an adverb of time. Now you are letting your servant depart in peace. He is ready to die now that he has seen the baby, who is the instrument of God's salvation. Now that Sim Simeon had seen the Messiah, the Savior of the whole world, with his own eyes, his faith in God's promise was confirmed. God had made a promise. Simeon was a true believer. He knew that promise would be fulfilled, and now it's fulfilled. His faith was trusted. God's word of salvation was proved to be correct by what he could now see, hear, and touch. And if you read especially the Gospel of John and 1 John, uh, there's a real emphasis on uh, these things happened in history. We were there. We were eyewitnesses. We touched him. We heard him. We held him. We saw these things. This is not some fantasy like Hinduism. It's not some myth. Like most, all religions are based on myths except for our religion, except Christianity. He could now be released from life with peace, with a happy, joyful, tranquil state of mind, knowing assuredly that God's salvation had come to earth. He had the perfect peace that comes when one knows their guilt and sin is removed by Jesus. And one is the assurance of God's love and favor. The fulfillment of all the Old Testament passages and types is in his arms. And therefore he declares that like a slave who is set free by a master, he is now ready to depart this life with peace and joy unfathomable. And in the Greek text, the word now is placed first 
in the emphatic position. Now that I've seen the Christ, I can depart in peace. In this blessing, there are a number of things to note for our edification first. Simeon trusted God's word, and that trust was logical, good, and wise. For God always keeps his word. God always keeps his word. The gospel comes to us in God's word. No one can believe in Christ without trusting also in the word of God. He trusted in the word of God, and then he got to meet Christ in person. His faith was confirmed. Secondly, he publicly confessed his faith in Jesus, and he calls the baby, your salvation. Verse 30. Paul says, Romans 10, 9, with a heart, one believes unto righteousness, and with a mouth confession is made unto salvation. Jesus said, look, if you don't confess me before men, I'm not going to confess you before the Father. If your faith is, does not confess, then it's not a real faith. Third, Due to his faith in Christ's redemption, he has no fear of physical death. One can never properly welcome the death of the body without faith in Jesus. No one is ready to depart who has not held on to the Redeemer in his arms with the eye of faith. The death of a faithful Christian who serves God is a blessed death. Does that mean it's not going to be painful? No. Does that mean death, death is not a sting, a sting of death? It's, it can be very unpleasant, but it's still a blessed death. For he departs in peace with God and peace with his own conscience. The atheist dies like a dog with nothing to hope for but the cosmic void. But since... He refuses to behold Jesus by faith. His death is a tragic, terrible, horrible thing. For he dies and he goes to hell where the worm dies not and the fire is not quenched. Matthew 9, 43-48. When I hear these unbelievers, these pagans, these rock stars and these actors and so forth, you know, dying of a drug overdose or dying here of old age or dying of cancer, it's a sad thing. Yes, they were famous. Yes, they were rich. Yes, they had pleasures on earth. But you can't take it with you. You have to have Christ. The Christian dies with a happy expectation of entering heaven to be with Jesus, the angels and the saints. He knows that he goes there, not because of his own works. For all of our works are stained with sin. They don't merit anything. But because... His sins have been imputed to Christ on the cross, and Jesus' perfect righteousness has been reckoned to our account. That's our hope. And that's why we go to heaven. All those who welcome Christ and hold on to him by faith may welcome death. As Paul says, Philippians 1.21, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Physical death. For Christians may be painful and very unpleasant. Paul even speaks of death as the sting of death. In 1 Corinthians 15, 55 and 56. But when a true Christian dies, he wakes up at home. And he beholds the face of God. And Jesus is there to welcome him. That's a blessed death. That's the death of a Christian. And then we come to his next point of prepared salvation. Simeon's praise continues by noting that the coming of Jesus is a salvation which is prepared for all peoples. And yes, peoples is plural. Verses 30 to 31. 
The you refers back to the word Lord in verse 29. Here the word Lord in Greek is not kurios, which is what it usually is, but despota. The Greek word despotin, when used of God in the New Testament, is always used to describe God the Father. <coughs> For example, Jude 4 says, The only Lord, despotin, God, and our Lord, Kyrion, Jesus Christ. Also, if you look at 2 Peter 2.1, Acts 4.24, 2 Timothy 2.21, Revelation 6.10. The word despotin focuses on God's sovereign power, dominion, and authority. And some scholars like the translation, Sovereign Lord. Simeon praises God not only for Jesus, but for that plan before the foundation of the world that resulted in the incarnation of the cross and the empty tomb. God always intended to save a people from their sins by Christ, and this plan always included the Gentiles. It included all peoples, not simply the Jews. God's salvation of his people was for those he foreknew or loved beforehand and predestined to be saved by Jesus and conformed to the image of his son, Romans 8.29 and Ephesians 1.3-10. Before John the Baptist and the preaching of the gospel by Jesus and the apostles, God has revealed the truth to Simeon about God's eternal plan of salvation. Jesus is just a baby. This is another testimony. This is a public testimony to Israel. The false salvation propagated so effectively by the Pharisees had not affected Simeon at all. When Simeon says, My eyes have seen your salvation, he is probably alluding to Isaiah 40, verse 5. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The Pharisees taught you were saved by good works, by keeping the law. And modern Judaism is that extension of Pharisaical Judaism. It's not Judaism at all. It's a false religion. It has nothing to do with the Old Testament. Men are never saved by good works. The Old Testament never teaches that. It teaches the necessity of covenant faithfulness, which is an aspect of our sanctification. But it never teaches that we're saved by our covenant faithfulness. It teaches that true faith leads to covenant faithfulness. But it never teaches that we're saved by covenant faithfulness because our faithfulness is never perfect. Everything we good, uh, Luke 17, 10, um, even our best works are tainted with sin, Jesus taught. And then we come to verse 31 in the universal salvation. In verse 31, Luke uses the plural peoples, indicating that the salvation that Jesus brings is for both Jews and Gentiles. This change of the visible church in the new covenant era, <clears throat> from the nation of the Jews to the multinational church of all peoples, was, of course, a great stumbling block to the unbelieving Jews. Verse 32 contains, uh, carries further the thought of verse 31 and describes the effect of Jesus and his salvation in different ways for both Jews and Gentiles. Listen carefully. A light to bring revelation to the Gentiles. Okay, that's how he describes what Christ does to the Gentiles. And then for the Jews, the glory of your people Israel. Two different descriptions. Unlike the Jews who received the light of revelation from Moses and the prophets, the Gentiles had lived in darkness for thousands of years. Darkness and ignorance characterized the whole world outside of Israel. The light of the gospel went from the family of Abraham 
and then the Jewish nation with only a few Gentiles saved by their contact with a small Jewish nation, like Ruth. Without special revelation, which was committed to the Jews, and I forgot to write down the reference, but in, uh, Paul says, hey, the Jews have a great advantage. They have the oracles of God. And then, of course, John 4, where the woman at the well and Jesus says, no, salvation is of the Jews. They've got the temple. They've got the divine revelation. They, they possess the word. The Gentile tribes and nations lived in gross darkness, idolatry, and superstition. They did not know the only way of salvation. And because of their inner depravity, they created false, perverted philosophies and religions that held men in an iron grip of darkness and Satanism. And all you have to do is go look at what Europe was like before Christianity. Child sacrifice, witchcraft, sorcery, shamanism. The world was in darkness. It was a terrible place. Look at the Aztecs and the Incas and the Indians and in the Americas. Human sacrifice, cutting a man's heart out while, it, while he was alive and holding it up, offering it to the sun god. Darkness. Satanism. The very best and wisest of their philosophers and religious leaders were totally ignorant of the truth about God, salvation, and spiritual matters. Paul says, Romans 1.20 1b and 22, they became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Without the light of special revelation, which teaches about the true God and the salvation that can only come through Jesus Christ, men worship idols of wood, stone, and metal. And they teach crazy stuff. I mean, look at the liberal. Look at liberals, for example, today. Men are, there's no difference between men and women, they tell us. Men are women and women are men. <laughs> it, it's insanity what's being taught today by intellectuals. This is, you know, Harvard and all these schools that, you know, a couple hundred years ago were Christian schools. They're all totally heathen now. The universal practice of, of idolatry among the heathen is accompanied by the grossest, most vile, of vices. The Gentiles' ignorance leads to universal ethical and spiritual religious monstrosity. In the same chapter of Romans, Paul discusses God's retribution against this rank idolatry by abandoning such men in their culture over to immorality. That's Romans 1, 24-32. You say, well, why is homosexuality spreading and more rampant? If you, uh, in a recent poll, people over 60, less than 2% said they're homosexual. In young people, like under 25, 20% claim to be homosexual or bisexual or, you know, one of those crazy terms they use. When you forget the true God, when you suppress the true knowledge of God and create idols, God turns you over to the most debased, disgusting behaviors and insanity. But with the coming of Christ and the gospel going to all nations, the gross darkness begins to dissipate. The message of the apostles was like a sunrise to Greece, Rome, in the pagan world. The places that possessed and embraced divine revelation were liberated from idolatry. And their change of worldview and ethics was a change from night to day. You know, people all praise, oh, Roman Greece was great. Well, it was great if you believed in a society of statism run on slavery and perversion. Greece, whorehouses were, uh, in Rome, whorehouses were common. They were all over the place. It was a very immoral, disgusting society. 
Yes, they build beautiful buildings. Yes, pagans today build beautiful cars, design great motorcycles. But that has nothing to do with ethics. That's surface knowledge. Idolatry, human sacrifice, witchcraft, sorcery. And the fertility cults were swept away by the gospel. And the societal sanctification brought on by scripture, faith in scripture. This great spread of light was prophesied in the Old Testament using language the Jews would understand. And this is from uh, Isaiah 2, 2-3. Two <clears throat> now it shall come to pass in the latter days, when you see that term latter days, that's the New Covenant era, that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow into it. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now, if you interpret that in light of the New Testament, that's talking about the New Covenant Church. The true worship of God and the biblical law order will eventually triumph over all religions and pagan law orders. The great commission given by Jesus after his resurrection has the task of discipling all nations using the Bible or special revelation. Gospel? You believe the gospel. Then what are you taught? You're taught the law. You're taught biblical ethics. One man, one woman, nuclear families, where men, don't, where men are faithful to their wives. They don't commit adultery and they don't leave their wives for younger women when they get older where women are faithful, and they don't run off with some young stud. The biblical world and life view is what built America in its better days, and that's being cast off now for insanity. Beginning at Jerusalem, the apostles and evangelists went throughout the whole Western civilized world, preaching the gospel of salvation, and the necessity to repent and obey the word of the Lord. The church has the divine oracles, and thus is the pillar and ground of the truth. The light of divine truth will drive out the world's darkness. So what Simeon is saying is quite profound, isn't it? It's pretty amazing. And Simeon's praise is reminiscent of Psalm 98, 1-3. O oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained him the victory. The Lord has made known his salvation. His righteousness he has revealed in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his mercy and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. It also alludes to uh, Isaiah 49.6. Indeed, he says, is it a too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel? I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the world the ends of the earth. The Jews should have known that God always intended to save the Gentiles. It's, it's throughout the Old Testament. Yet they didn't like that idea because they were a bunch of, they were full of pride and they were racists. The Jews were not in complete darkness like the Gentiles and thus the coming of Christ for Israel receives a different description. The Jews already had divine revelation, but they were waiting for the manifestation of glory that God promised with the coming of the Messianic King. For Israel, the coming of the Redeemer spells glory. 
We are reminded of the words of Isaiah 46, 13. I bring my righteousness near. It shall not be far off. My salvation shall not linger. And I will place salvation in Zion for Israel my glory. The Jews were God's special people out of all the people of the whole world. They were a chosen people. They were descended from the family of Abraham and thus possessed the covenants, the promises, and the law and scripturated, and the biblical teaching about God and salvation. They had the great privilege of the temple where true worship was observed, and the special Shekinah presence dwelt above the cherubim in the temple, the Holy of Holies. Yet the greatest privilege they had was being used by God to give the one and only Savior to the whole world. Jesus is greater than the temple. The temple points to Jesus, but it's not Jesus. It's just a building. There was nothing compared to the fact that out of Israel, the God-man was born, raised, served, obeyed, fulfilled his mission. <clears throat> this was to be the highest honor of the Jewish nation, that the mother of Christ was a Jewish woman, and that the blood of one made according to the seed of David, according to the flesh, was to make atonement for the sin of mankind. Romans 1.3 Of all those who are spirit, of spiritual or true Israel, Jesus is their glory unto eternity. Isaiah 60.19 The sun shall no longer be your light by day, nor the brightness shall, be the, moon of, shall the moon give you light to you. But the Lord shall be to you an everlasting light, and your God, your glory. And what does that remind you of? It reminds you of, Genesis, uh, of uh, the book of Revelation. Isaiah 45, 25. In the Lord, all the descendants of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. In 1 Corinthians 1, 30 to 31. You are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Now, Joseph and Mary marveled at the things that Simeon said about the newborn Jesus. Simeon's declaration that the Gentiles added to their knowledge uh, received from the angel and gave more specifics relating to the saving of the Gentiles. They were amazed that within the space of only a few months they had received special revelation about the child from both an angel and now a prophet of God. And every time this happened, they pondered it. They meditated on it. They, they were amazed. But then Simon adds a prophecy, and let's look at that. This is 35 to, 34 to 35. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the falling and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. As a prophet from God, he blesses Joseph and Mary. A similar blessing was made by Eli to the parents of Samuel. 1 Samuel 2.20 It was an incredible gift and spiritual blessing to be the parents of the Messiah. They were honored with, with being related to this child and with raising him up. And they had a special reason to rejoice in that their child would be a great blessing to the whole world. It's like if you're a parent and you, you want to raise up a, a son or a daughter, you want them to make a difference for good, for the kingdom. Now, after the blessing, Simeon focuses his attention on Mary and gives her two distinct but related prophecies. The first 
is related to Israel. Jesus will be a great divider of men. His presence and teaching will lead to a radical division within the nation. Most people in Israel, due to unbelief, a refusal to repent, and their indoctrination under the false interpretation of Scripture by the Pharisees and the Sadducees, will reject Jesus as the Messiah and Savior of Israel. Christ will be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, Isaiah 8, 14 and 15, to many, and we could say most of Israel. And Paul says that to the Jews our Lord was a stumbling block, 1 Corinthians one twenty three. He was something that caused them to fall. This was evidence of their pride and unbelief. And, of course, their spiritual blindness. They sought to earn heaven through works of their own righteousness, Romans 10, 3-4. And they were seeking a warrior king who would lead a vast army against Rome, using swords and spears and shields. That's what they were looking for. They rejected Jesus because he did not fit their humanistic heretical presuppositions. They didn't want a suffering servant of Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, Psalm 69, etc. They didn't want that. They wanted a conquering king with swords and spears. The coming of the Messiah necessarily involves a crisis, a separation, a judgment. Some welcome the light. Others love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. John 3.19 Judas turned against Jesus, and, and in the despair of unbelief, he went out and he hung himself. While Peter repented, and he served Christ. One of the malefactors on the cross reacted to Jesus. He, re he believed, he repents, he confessed, while the other blasphemed Christ. And here's what Jesus said, and it was actually in our uh, scripture reading in Mark today. But this is the account for Matthew 10, 34 to 36. Our Lord said, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against his mother, and a daughter-in-law against his mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. People who are not Christians, especially secular humanists, despise Christianity. They hate Christ. And they know in America, for example, the secular humanists, the atheists, the, the socialists, the Democratic Party, they know it's their greatest enemy because they want to act as God. They want to create their own law. They want to create their own fiat currency. They want to rule over men as lords in a satanic way. And they know that Christ opposes all that. For Jesus is Lord. Men, their rule is purely ministerial. Men can't make up their own laws. To the covenant nation's rejection and murder of Christ. They will be destroyed by the armies of Rome, and not one stone will be left upon another. Matthew 24, 2. And that also we read that in our reading from Mark today. Not one stone will be left upon another. And I've been told uh, by people who study this in depth that what happened was that there was a lot of gold and lining and gold in the temple, and it melted into the rocks because they set it on fire. And the Romans pried those rocks apart to get all the gold out. And therefore they tore the temple in, in pieces. All that was left was the ancient giant foundation. However, 
at the same time, the resurrected ascended Christ is building his church. He is raising up the tabernacle of David, Acts 15, 16, and building his temple, the church, one stone upon another, Ephesians 2, 19-22. Jesus is a rock of offense to those who stumble at the word, 1 Peter 2, 8. They regard the gospel as foolishness, and they cling to their humanism and idolatry. So what's the obvious conclusion? What's the obvious application? One cannot be neutral with regard to Christ and the word of God and the gospel. It is either a savior of death unto death or a savior of life unto life. 2 Corinthians 2.16 Matthew 11.6 Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Men who agreed who agree in virtually nothing else. They all agree in hating and opposing Christ. From the very beginning, multitudes have been haters and persecutors of the truth. And that's a sign that Jesus is the true Messiah, that their hatred of him. I've done door-to-door work in Jewish neighborhoods in North Philadelphia when I was in seminary, and believe me, you want to see hate? Do that. Or secular humanists. Secular humanists, their hatred comes out. They hate the gospel. They hate Christ of the Passion. And the same division, by the way, continues throughout history. The great antithesis between the followers of the Messiah and the true God and unbelievers in all their forms must exist and cannot be denied. This teaches us very clearly that faithful Christians who really believe the truth and they practice what they preach, must expect persecution in some form. That's what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.12. All you who desire godly, to live godly, will suffer persecution. And it tells us that religious, ethical, and spiritual, and even political neutrality with the heathen is impossible. How in the world can you compromise with people who hate Christ and hate the Bible and hate the law of God? How can you compromise with such people? To seek neutrality is to seek compromise with evil. This point should be obvious to everyone in our day. When the state actively promotes homosexual and transgendered sinful perversions and wants to teach them to five-year-olds. Disgusting. Insanity. And they're supported by Hollywood. They're supported by the corporations. They're supported by the media. With few exceptions. As well, of course, state theft through fiat currency and unjust Marxist principles of taxation. The reason we have really bad inflation is because the state just starts printing money. They just create money with a computer out of nothing. And that's theft. That's state theft. Christians who promote neutrality and seek compromise with statist, atheist, and secular humanists do so because they themselves have already become uh, began to apostatize and compromise with human autonomy. Don't compromise with these people. Don't put your kids in a public school. What's wrong with you? You want your kids to be taught by Canaanites? Pro-Sodomites? Atheists? People who serve the Democratic Party and fund it and contribute to the uh, spiritual decline of our, our nation? How dare you put your kids in a public school? And then the second prophecy relates to Mary's personal suffering. 
and that she will uh, lose her own son in a cruel, unjust execution by the Romans, instituted by the Jewish leadership. And we know from the gospel she was an eyewitness of the crucifixion. This will cause great affliction to Mary, like a sword stuck right through her heart. That's what he says. The suffering that awaited her son will be brutal and intense. And call to mind passages such as Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, Psalm 69. Even though Mary will understand the necessity of Jesus' death as an atoning sacrifice for sin, it had to happen. That's why he came to earth. Her emotional, her maternal heart will still be deeply wounded seeing her son suffer and die in such a way. She was there the whole time. She saw it. And there were other women with her. Now what do you think of Christ? What part of the dividing line are you on? Is he your Lord and Savior? Do you love him with the whole heart? Are you for him or against him? Do the things of this world mean more to you than serving and following Christ? If you are not a Christian, right now is the time to believe in Jesus Christ. Lay down the weapons of your warfare against him. Repent and follow him from now on as his disciple. There's nothing more important than this. If you don't think it's important, then you're obviously not a Christian. Paul says, Romans 10, 9 to 11, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness. And with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. If you're a pagan, I was raised a pagan. I was a drug dealer. My friends were all into drugs. And I was in a really good rock band and playing nightclubs and all that. If you're a Christian, you, if you become a Christian, they'll all hate you. They'll all think you're an idiot. They'll despise you. They'll gossip about you. They'll slander you behind your back. And, they, and, so, and your response should be, so what? Good. I'm being persecuted for Christ's sake. I don't need that old life. I don't need that. I don't need to follow darkness and Satan. I'm going to follow Christ. So now's the time. Now's the day of salvation. Believe in Christ and you will be saved. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for this incredibly rich message of Simeon even when Jesus was just a baby, only around 40 days old. We thank you for it, Lord. Put it in our heart. Have us meditate on it. Have us act upon it. We live in a time when our society is getting extremely evil and corrupt. Help us, Lord, to be faithful in these times. Be a salt and light to this pagan culture. Not to compromise. Not to put our kids in public school. Not to compromise in any way. Not to go to church just for the sake of entertainment but to go to churches that preach your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.